Jeffrey Davis, who was on here, what, a week ago, two weeks ago? I don't know. It's all, it's all a blur. The title, Bitcoin Millionaire. And we are now going to go into, well, I suppose you're going to teach me even more. And uh, as everybody can see, he has on the wizard's cloak. It's a, a green jacket, which with green screen, I guess, abilities on Zoom. You've got a Hubble telescope image as your as your shirt, and you look like something out of Lord of the Rings. But, Mr. Jeffrey Davis, please introduce yourself for all the new listeners. Uh, good afternoon. I'm Jeff Davis, and um, I'm a crypto millionaire. <laughs> my, my, yeah. um, I, my, I took the liberty of, of naming it last time, but uh, as you just explained to me, all you did was give the thumbs up. It's all the credit actually goes to your wife. So uh, I suppose indeed, I, I suppose she's the brains behind the operation. I'm a retired engineer living in Mexico, about an hour north of Cabo. And um, about 2017, I came out of retirement. Although to be true, a truthful, I was born retired. And um, decided to get involved after my wife made me a crypto millionaire uh, to get involved in that uh, frenzy of uh, ICO activity that ICO stands for initial coin offering, which uh, had arisen to about three quarters of a trillion dollars worth of crypto market cap at the time. And at which point the Securities and Exchange Commission of the United States decided there was so much money moving around that they needed to get involved. And that put a damper on that activity. Uh, but uh, I started to build what was essentially going to be an, an ICO, cryptocurrency investment bank. And uh, then I went to Washington several times, spoke with the variety of people then during the Trump administration who were uh, congressmen uh, on the financial services subcommittee, House Financial Services Subcommittee, who have oversight of the SEC, in an effort to get them to help us to pursue our activity, um, to, uh, to uh, speak to the SEC in our favor. And then I met with the House, the Senate Banking Committee, a group of staff members, uh, lawyers from the Senate Banking Committee, and they made it quite clear that they were going to war against crypto and that uh, I was a small fry and did not have the resources to fight that battle. They uh, sent me a subpoena, it cost me 15 grand. I shot over across my bow, and I retired from the crypto project at that point. I was going to wait because I could see the war coming until the crypto community had developed and had challenged the, uh, the uh, folks on the regulatory commission were trying to keep them from moving forward and a variety of individuals in the Congress became favorable to promoting crypto. In other words, there would come a point where the war would be lost by the regulators and they would have to um, compromise and figure out how they could live with, if not actually uh, promote crypto. They haven't gotten there yet. They're still trying to protect the American dollar and 
you know, I, I can understand that. Who can't? It's the it's the basis of the American power in the in the, in the world. So uh, they're uh, they're still trying to figure it out. Uh, and crypto keeps moving forward. Uh, the thing that crypto does most uh, most uh, uh, prominently, most uh, which has the greatest impact, is that while the digital world we live in has taken over everything up to the point where now with cryptocurrency, it's challenging the world financial system. That's the last step. That's the last battle to convert the world financial system to digital operation. China is working on issuing a digital yuan. Mexico is thinking about it. Um, El Salvador has adopted Bitcoin as its uh, crypto as its uh, as legal tender. Mexico is considering that as well. And the United States is in a situation where they're trying to figure out what to do about it. Because on the one hand, the American dollar is being uh, processed by the old legacy system, um, SWIFT, um, IMF, International Monetary Fund, World Bank, all of the investment banking um, uh, institutions – the, uh, the Treasury, Wall Street, City of London, Rothschild Group, all the big money movers work within the old system. Now, of course, they see the, uh, they see the writing on the wall, and they're all trying to figure out how they can make the transition. They're not going to just curl up in a ball and, and, and give in. So along with that, the United States is also working on that. Now, I wanted to do a share screen with you on a on a uh, an article that came up, and darn it, I thought I had it here on my regular desktop. But um, uh, let's see if I can find it. Let me go th- do it this way. Yeah, I, uh, I think you had it at the beginning. I think I saw. No, it. no, that no, that was something else. Ah, okay. uh, uh, come on, come on. Um, no, you're fine. Take your time. I know it's it's it's. I I can never uh, I can never uh, multitask when I'm doing the podcast. But it makes you think. Oh, if it is, if it is the basis of, I mean, U.S. hegemony. Well, that and the overwhelming military force. You got to think. I don't think they're stupid enough to try to crash crypto. I think you're right. I think they see the writing on the wall. It's inevitable. It's right. You know, you don't, you don't try to dissuade everyone else from building nuclear bombs. You try to build the biggest. You just, you see that it's an unstoppable tsunami. So you got to get out in front of it. You can't try to stop it. It makes you think what the, what the federal reserve and I mean, really everything you said, the Rothschild banking groups, the IMF, the world bank, you got to imagine how are they going to try to get out in front of this? But I do see the article now. Russian aggression hastens lawmakers. Russian aggression hastens lawmakers push to enforce sanctions in crypto industry. Yes. So the latest event. <laughs> I mean, we were together about ten days ago. Yeah. And in that ten days, the world has changed. Yeah. Everybody listening today is March fifth, uh, twenty twenty-two. 
Yeah. Uh, so what happened here is the Justice Department also launched a Klepto Cup Capture Task Force to target the use of cryptocurrency for sanctions, for sanctions evasion. Um, let's see if I can find the spot. Well, you have the title. Anyone who is interested can fire it up by doing a, a Google search. And what they're saying is that because of the sanctions, the, the immense change in the world's um, um, economic activities, the sanctioning of Russia massively, that uh, one of the things Russia is doing, one of the things the world is doing, uh, is moving over to cryptos as a mechanism for avoiding the consequences of the sanctions. So um, that's the latest. There was a there was a paragraph in there. I really should have identified it. Where let, actually, let me go back and see if I can find it. We'll take a second. Yeah, who cares, man? Take your time. We're on. We're on. Okay. We're on no deadline. Okay. Okay. Let's see if I can find it. Um, I know. Seems like there's a paragraph on what we were talking about, about uh, how you can't really stop it. Said the United States must be the world leader. It's going to happen just like the internet happened. That, that's the paragraph. All right, good, that's, perfect. Where is that one? Uh, it's right above your above your cursor. Okay, it's going to happen just like the internet happened. And what would be the ramifications of countries having their own digital currency? Because I think this is going to be the way of the future. He said, who is the he? He is uh, Representative this is, uh, Mike McCall, Republican from Texas, ranking member of the House Foreign Affairs Committee and co-chair of the Congressional Internet Caucus. Co-chair of the Congressional Internet Caucus. And he said, I argue that the United States has to lead and we need to set the rules of the road on this and we need to start working on our own digital currency. Okay, uh, so uh, this is yet another impetus that the, the United States needs to not be left behind. Uh, and so you have that. Mm -hmm. So we'll go back to main screen. So... Um, I kind of felt that after last session, we'd covered a lot. Um, one of the items that perhaps deserves a little more attention is the fact that the emergence of cryptocurrencies and digital technology, digital, digital uh, currencies, is a challenge to the most powerful forces in the world, both the United States as uh, the hegemon and the, the uh, operator of the world's reserve currency, and all of the people who have money interests in the world, the most powerful, most wealth, the wealthiest people in the world. Now, um, have you ever watched George Carlin's Best Three Minutes? I've seen a lot of George Carlin, I'm not sure. What his best three okay. minutes are. Uh, if you Google up the best three minutes, you will get two or three Google pages that all show the same three minutes. I read it and listened to it so many times that I can virtually 
repeat it word for word. It works something like this. Um, don't complain about education. Be happy with what you got. Not going to change uh, because the owners of the country oh, yeah. don't want that. Yeah, I'm talking about the real owners now, not the politicians. Forget the politicians. They're there to give you the notion that you have freedom of choice. You don't. You have no choice. You have owners. They own you. They own all the best land. They own all the corporations. They've got the city council and the state legislature and the, the congressmen. They own them. They've got the judges in their back pocket. Uh, and they own all of the media corporations that tell you what to think and what to believe. They've got you by the balls. Okay. That group of people are the group of, is, is the group that is being challenged by the digital revolution that has reached the finance, the financial services organization of the world. So, and they can't stop it. So, you know, if you can't beat them, you got to join them and if possible, own them. Then that's what they will, they'll be doing. But just as the internet has freed up people like yourself and all the other thousands of independent voices, it's also freed up this kind of commercial activity, the revolution in the, in the cryptosphere. And to give you an example, I don't know how many, YouTube podcasters there are, or Rumble podcasters, or I mean the number of different channels, video channels, and and uh, uh, text, you know, um, print channels there are. But I know that in the crypto sphere there are two hundred thousand Ethereum tokens alone. That means that while anybody can have, can generate a crypto token. So there may not be 2000 participants because like I intend to generate at least four crypto tokens of my own to fund a variety of projects that I have in the works. So there may be less than 200,000, but there are a lot of people out there with 200,000 product projects worth who've generated tokens and the number continues to grow at a very rapid rate. Then there are 25 equivalent blockchain networks, blockchains of the sort that have the functionality of the Ethereum blockchain, which allows separate tokens to be generated on a, uh, on the blockchain. Um, 25 of those, including the Binance blockchain, smart chain, the Binance smart chain. And it, uh, I tried to check to see how many um, Binance smart chain tokens have been generated so far. I couldn't find a number, but at this time today, they were growing at the rate of about 3,000 a day. What does this mean? This means that any human being, a kid in an alley in Bangladesh who has a smartphone, can become a global entrepreneur by generate, uh, generating a token on one of the many 25 smart chains. This is a, an opportunity for an explosion of worldwide entrepreneur, entrepreneurial activity. And I wish the United States would get behind it because, well, people need opportunity. We need jobs. 
we need to work to, to exploit the benefits of the digital universe that we live in. And this is the perfect mechanism for that. When people learn about it, it will get, it will explode even faster than it's exploding now. Mm-hmm. <sighs> and in, in, in reference to what you said earlier, I can't source this, but I'm pretty sure I saw something that we, there was an explosion during the pandemic, but there was at least, I think 10, at one point there was 10 million podcasts. I think a lot, and a lot of those could be guys that made one and then stopped. I mean, that happens a lot. People make one episode or they will do one a week for a month and then just quit. But sometime during the pandemic, it, it peaked at, I think 10 million. And I'm, I imagine it's probably sliding back down now. But I mean, even if it was just, even if I was off by an order of magnitude, a million separate podcasts, even a hundred thousand separate podcasts. I mean, we think of like, there's Fox, CNN, and MSNBC, and maybe there's some nightly shows. It's like you could name all of those on 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 you know, two sets of hands. But if there's ten million, or again, even one million, or a hundred thousand, or ten thousand, if you're off by an, a thousand, yeah, it's it's. But it, it does come back down to, I think it might have been you and I talking about this last time, or someone else. They all kind of run together. But it was, it was like the the thermonuclear age. It was when uh, Enrico Fermi went to Truman with a couple other physicists, and they started talking about the hydrogen bomb, which was going to be a thousand times stronger than the atomic bomb. And the meeting only lasted seven minutes, and it ended with Truman saying, can the Soviets do it? And they said, within a couple of years, they will. I said, well, then we have no choice. I think his words were, well, go ahead, meaning start the Beardlot beard lot project, which, came, which became Campbell. Campbell is in soup. Soup is in super. That was their code name. And... Uh, but I always look back to that. You have to lead it, right? When the Soviets shoot up Sputnik, we don't just say, uh, rats, I guess that's what it is. No, wait, we, the United States has to go big and let's go to the moon. There's always that, whether it's the Human Genome Project or the Internet or whatever, they always have to be on the forefront. So to me, it only makes sense that they have to do this. You have to get out in front of it. Because if you don't, it'll it'll eat you up. Sorry for that little yep. rant. Okay, well, uh, there was a um, a YouTube video which depicted, and still there again. It's one of those things that uh, I have to take a minute or two to track down, but uh, it shows a history of all of the nuclear detonations, the nuclear tests. Mm-hmm. Have you seen it? Yeah, I've seen that one. Yeah, yeah. It takes about three minutes, and if you run it at double speed, it takes a minute and a half, and each time there's a little detonation, they give a little a little beep, a yeah. little music. So if you run it at double speed, it almost sounds like a kaleidoscope, and you can watch it. Uh, they, they show a little blip of light at the location of the nuclear detonation and there have been like a couple of thousand of them now the the uh, the character of a nuclear explosion of the electromagnetic radiation that's given off is unique there is no other way that happens except 
with a technological society developing the ability to generate that. So, and, and because of the power of the emissions from that explosion, it's essentially a signal mm-hmm. sent out into the rest of the universe yep. that, that here is a technological society emerging. Here we are. And, you know, if they miss the first one or the second one or the third one, as soon as they figure it out and they start watching, they're going to see this kaleidoscope of detonations. Now, uh, of course, the the distances between planets, uh, stars, and, and their possible inhabited planets is large so that the first alien civilizations, if they exist, to get the message would be those closest to us. Um, and uh, I, I like the UFO uh, story. I, I like uh, the subject matter. Oh, I, I was about uh, to say, I love it. And do you want to hear my, my thoughts on, on Roswell? Oh, go for it. Absolutely. I've told this story before and made this analogy before, and I'm quite proud of it. Think of uh, 2005, my freshman year in high school, and me and my buddies uh, were at his mom's house and, you know, little little shitheads, 15-year-olds. We Before we were drinking or anything, we were just shooting bottle rockets at other people's lawns. And uh, I think we, like, lit a couple lawns on fire. And again, little 15 year olds and we were terrified. And so like we went and like hid in his garage and we were like, we had it, the garage was raised like a foot and we were all looking under and, uh, you know, we were setting off bottle rockets all in Roman candles. So like five or six minutes, no, probably more than that, maybe like 10 minutes passed. And like a cop car rolled through the neighborhood again, nice suburban neighborhood. And it's bottle rockets on a Friday night. I don't think the cop was too concerned and the cop left and, Either the cop didn't know where it came from or they knew what they were doing. Just go and show yourself. Or it was a cool cop and it's probably like I can see those 15-year-olds, but, you know, I was 15 once. Whatever it was, we didn't actually get, like, apprehended or talked to, but the message was clear. They knew where it was. So to me, what I would – so let's break that down. There was an event, a Roman candle, a bottle rocket. Uh, There was a response, a cop car, to a general vicinity. Not necessarily that house, but the cul-de-sac we were on. They were coming by just to let us know we were there. We didn't cause any damage. Maybe that was them saying, you know, let's keep it that way. You got away with it, okay. And we didn't do anything. We were scared shitless. So, the first atomic bomb was July 16th, 1945. Now, Magorda, New Mexico. All right, Trinity, there it was. The alleged Roswell craft was not it wasn't 10 minutes later it was two years later right but in the grand scheme of human history it was within two years of the explosion okay that's you know all the way back from the pyramids and ancient alien sure but let's go with like the mainstream first right roswell okay well okay all of human history that's one thing sure nuclear weapon maybe you're just you know maybe there's bias well proximity Across the entire globe, right? What is it, 24,000 miles across? I don't know what the square mileage of the Earth is. It's pretty big. 116 miles from Alamogordo is where the craft allegedly cra- crashed. Almost two years to the day. So what was it? It was a nuclear event with a very signature burst. Did a co- Was that a cop car? 
And I don't believe that it crashed. I think that it was a shot across the bow, much like you with uh, with uh, the the finance institutions. I don't think they can, I don't think they come across the galaxy to crash. I think it was a a shot across the bow. Hey, we're here. We're watching you, right where the only nuclear bomber, the only nuclear bomb wing in any air force on the earth is stationed. It crashes right there. Now, what is it? Is that them? saying you've achieved nuclear technology, you guys are the most advanced, here's a craft, see what you can do with this? Or is it a shot across the bow? Is it, hey, we see you, here's a, here's a, you know, you're not the most advanced in the world. Is that the cop car going by the cul-de-sac? That's my analogy, and, I, and I'm sticking with it. Okay, I'm opening... Here we go, huh? I'm trying to. Hold on. You're good. I'm opening my UFO file. Uh, and I don't have a lot, but this is what I've got uh, in that file. I'm going to do the uh, screen share for you. And here's what I have. You see that? Mm-hmm. See this? Okay. This is Roswell. This is a this is Roswell. A gentleman named Gerald Anderson and another gentleman named W. Glenn Davis were interviewed. These are the two YouTube addresses for those two interviews. W. Glenn Davis was a young man in his early twenties at the time, who was called up by the local Air Force base. And they, he was working at a mortuary. Mm-hmm. They asked him extensively about how to deal with human re- with remains to preserve them as best as possible. And he said, well, I can come out and help you if you want. No, 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 no need. We'll call you if we need you. Thank you very much. Okay. Later that day, he went to the site of a traffic accident where one of the airmen from the base had had an injury. It wasn't a serious thing, but he took him, uh, Glenn Davis, took the gentleman, the airman, to the hospital on the base. And he stopped because he had uh, met a nurse at the hospital. And remember, he's a young guy. And so he went in to chat, to find the nurse and to chat with her. And she emerged from a room in the uh, vicinity of the emergency room uh, area and moved across the hall from the door she emerged in into the bathroom and then came out a little bit later and he kind of signaled to her and and she said, you got to get out of here, go now. Okay, so he'd almost left, but before he did, he was stopped by personnel who wanted to interrogate him about what he'd seen, what he knew, why he was there. And he said um, he had heard that there was a crash, that he had just delivered this airman to the, to the emergency room, and they'd heard that there was a crash. And they said, what, 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 what? You know, and so they were very very careful with him and he identified the two people who were most 
attentive to him and harshly so, a tall redheaded officer and a black sergeant. And they finally let him go and um, he left. And then his family was contacted later and told, don't breathe a word of this or people will go to jail. Fine. Uh, Later, he met with the nurse and she explained to him that she had seen this corpse and that it had been non-human and that she described in detail the physical characteristics of the corpse that uh, that remained identifiable. Okay, fine. Now, oh, and he also mentioned that when he went into the emergency room, he noticed that there were two ambulances parked outside with, unusually, guards guarding each of them. And that he could see inside the back of the ambulance pieces that looked like they had been um, um, pieces of, of a of airplane crash, uh, aluminum kind of airplane materials with peculiar writing on them. They didn't make anything of it except for the unusual nature of having a guard. <coughs> okay, so he left and later on his family was contacted and people were threatened and uh, that was the end of that. Until this interview of him in 1990, He was 60 years old at the time. Okay. Then there's Gerald Anderson. He was a seven, eight, nine-year-old boy at the time of the crash. His members of his family, men from his family, went out in a pickup truck, I guess, uh, or some other vehicle to uh, the vicinity in the desert for some unexplained reason, and they wandered out in the direction and they discovered what Gerald Anderson, now a pastor at a local church, 40, uh, let's see, 90, um, it'd be about 40 years after the the incident. And he's an older guy, uh, portly, you know, he's got a little paunch and, is a pastor at the church, or a, and uh, he he describes the event. They came upon the crashed vehicle beneath a, 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 an outcrop of the of the, the crash. The vehicle stuck in the hillside, and there's a shade portion underneath it. Uh, there are two clearly dead, horribly mutilated bodies, and then one living body which is also injured severely and one uninjured, um, I might as well just say it, alien, Mm -hmm. right? The aliens were able to communicate with the humans telepathically, Mm -hmm. not necessarily uh, linguistically, but there was an emotional connection. The the kid, Gerald Anderson, who was nine at the time, did what a nine-year-old boy would do while the adults stood there trying to figure out what they would do about this situation. Um, He looked around, he looked inside the the crash, damaged craft. Um, He uh, kind of had a connection with the living alien 
who was watching the three other uh, bodies, the two badly dead ones and the one who was injured badly, and described his emotional state. Uh, the, the adults tried to communicate, failed to do so. Then two more groups of people, one an older professorial type with a, a group of students who had seen the crash from a distance the night before and came to look um, and followed later by a gentleman in a, in a pickup truck who uh, arrived nearby. And they all gathered around to deal with uh, this unusual situation. And a little bit later, a whole battalion of military descended on the scene. And the military in contingent was led by a tall officer with red hair and a black sergeant. Now, what I'm getting at here is that the two stories, they, they both join at that point. Mm -hmm. They both um, corroborate each other at that point. And when you go to these websites and you go to these interviews and you watch them, what you come away with, what any normal person will come away with is that these guys are not frauds. They are just the regular, the most regular of regular people. You cannot, there's no way in the world that they're publicity seekers or nutcases or they're just the, the most regular people you could possibly ever see. And consequently, their reports are almost beyond doubt truthful. And they join at the report of the tall redheaded officer and the black sergeant. That tells me that the crash happened. It happened there. And that at least one living alien was taken into custody. And at least one injured alien was taken to the hospital. And, and the other two, no doubt, the remains of the other two found themselves somewhere. So we have to think that the American military is in possession of the remains of that craft and that they had whatever opportunity they had to communicate with the alien subsequently. Okay. Uh, now I've had this discussion with others before and anybody who wants to, to check these out can simply take a screen grab. So I can stop that. Um, and People, understandably, react the way most people have reacted for the last 40 years, 50 years, which is, you know, um, people who report seeing aliens, you know. Yeah. Right. But if you go there and you see the two interviews, you're left with the unmistakable, I mean, I would hope, um, notion that it's true. And once you get past that, that stigmatized kind of denial yeah. that's built into that story, then you have to ask yourself how many of the other thousands of events are actually real. Even if you eliminate four-fifths of nine-tenths of them, you still end up with hundreds, if not thousands, of reports that you have to believe are genuine. 
And there is also no particular reason uh, to imagine that the aliens haven't been visiting the planet Forever. for a long, long time. Yeah. Just because we've noticed them, just because we signaled to them that things were getting interesting here doesn't mean they weren't here before. So, and of course, you're familiar with the Betty and Barney Hill story. Yeah. And I've, I've actually I've watched the W. Glenn Davis interview. I hadn't watched the other one, but I, I know exactly what you're talking about. The W. Glenn Davis one, yeah, it's, I think it was like – I think he gave that interview like a couple of days before I was born. He's in like a flannel shirt and like a chair. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I've watched that one. Yeah. yeah. So um, I have been convinced for a long time that the answer to the Fermi paradox – you're familiar with the Fermi paradox, no doubt. Yeah. Enrico Fermi out Los Alamos. Uh, he came upon a discussion in the lunchroom uh, between guys who were talking about the aliens. And he said, well, where are they? Because if they existed, they would uh, be all over the place by now. Because even with the technology at the time, it was possible for Fermi to see that the colonization of the galaxy would be able to be done in about 50,000 years. So uh, he said, where are they? And the answer to the Fermi paradox is they're all over the place. They come here all the time. Yeah. There have been thousands upon thousands of visits. We now have video of them yeah. in the yeah. age of the digital camera. The Tic Tac. So, yeah, 2004 off Nimitz. I mean, that general, I don't, you've probably watched it, right? That General Fravor interview with Joe Rogan. Oh, yeah. That guy's, oh, absolutely. That guy's as far from a whack job as you can get. I mean, that guy's about as like, square jaw american fighter pilot jock as you can get like yep that's that's not a guy that's not a guy seeking anything that's a dude who gives a very calm cool collected recollection of what happened and there's really no way you can like when you truly come to terms with what he's saying it's either either we have developed craft that are beyond anything we thought possible which that's not that absurd, right? We, we had the SR-71 Blackbird in the 60s, maybe. Or we reverse engineered something, which is insane. Or that's not ours, which is insane. Well, I'm sure you've seen the Bob Lazar interview. Oh, yeah, with, no, uh, I've watched that one. I've yeah, watched that one like yeah, 10 yeah. times. Yeah. Yeah. The, see, the, the, the problem is that people are still stuck in the, I don't believe it. Yeah, the little green men. like. Yeah, no, but once you move past the, I don't believe it, to the it's real, then things like Bob Lazar's reports make sense because the military has been in possession of at least that one that crashed in Roswell. And according to Bob Lazar, half a dozen, six, seven, eight, nine others, um, some of which were found as part of an archaeological. Yeah. yeah, which is insane. Dig. In other words, they've been here so long. They've been around so Jeff, you're breaking up. Oh, Jeff, I don't know if you can see. Sure, which? You froze up. You froze up for a second. Okay, you're back. Yeah. yeah. It's, okay. you're it's saying, my connection. Yeah. Archaeological dig saying they've been around so long. That's when you cut out. Yeah, clearly. So um, that's fun. That's fun. I could I could go on with that story for hours. But but to me that it's I don't think you even need to move from you do need to move away from the oh little green men like yeah you, I don't think you even need to go all in and believe it like you and I clearly do I think you just have to entertain the idea 
and go, what is it really? Like, re- remove the idea of little green men, remove the idea of men in black. Just what is it? It's, it's, it's intelligence in the universe who inevitably are going to be curious, right? We, we're sending rovers to Mars. We've, we're sending, they've gone past the heliosphere with Voyager 1 and 2. We've sent them around Saturn and Jupiter. Just We just went by uh, Pluto, what, last year or the year before. So just extrapolate that, right? The right flyer in 1902, extrapolate that 67 years later leads to us walking on the moon. So just extrapolate our rovers another 67 years or a thousand years. Where, where, where would it eventually go? You'd start visiting other places and some of them would crash. I don't think that's that, that, that's that absurd at all. No, at all. no, not at all. It's Maybe not- they were having mechanical difficulties and they were looking for a spot to... Uh, to a safe spot to, to land. Maybe. Like there's a, I remember a story about an aircraft that had let, lost, uh, either they ran out of fuel or that total engine failure over the mid Pacific became a glider. And they knew of a small Island somewhere within their glide range. And they turned and they used that as their, their place to, uh, to land safely. So that could be the answer to this. Yeah. Uh, or or it's – sometimes I think it's maybe a little closer to 2001 A Space Odyssey. It's something along the lines of let's see if this can speed up evolution. They play it off as a crash, but why wouldn't you just, I don't know, throw something down there, right? Or if, it, if it's archaeological dig, then it would truly be exactly like 2001 A Space Odyssey. But if it's 1947 and it's a crash, I think that's – I think that's an intelligence just going, let's see what they do with it. It's good, but maybe just curiosity. Maybe they want to hasten our, hasten our development. Maybe they want to see where are we spiritually. Do we take it and do we try to reverse engineer it and cure all the problems in the world? Or do we take it and hide it away in a bunker? You know, it's. Well, one of the notions that I entertain about their rationale is that while the laws of physics are the same everywhere and the laws of chemistry are the same everywhere, the biological diversity is unique Mm -hmm. to each location where biology evolves. So what they might be looking for is um, a library of potential biological um, mechanisms. Now, for the longest time, when people spoke about the uh, the abductions, I I hadn't reached the place where I am now, where I believe clearly that they are around and they visit us regularly. And uh, <clears throat> but there was a group of reports that indicated the use of an anal probe. Yeah. Yeah, that's the yeah, first, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. the first South Park and, episode ever, too. And when I heard about that, I said, "Oh no, 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 no. that's that's some perverse sexual projection weirdness. Yeah. That's too." But then, about five years ago, four years ago, time flies. I became interested in the concept of the microbiome. Mm-hmm. Familiar with it? Mm-hmm. The human body, every single living creature that has a mouth and a butthole has a digestive tract. With its own, uh, yeah. Poop shoot, 
technical term. Technical term. Yeah. Yeah. You have you have your own unique microbiome. Something like ten times as many cells. That's how many different or not different. How many uh, micro life forms you have in your gut? Right. Right. And every single living creature evolved the 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 uh, complex creatures, which evolved from the bacterial uh, ancestry. Those creatures evolved within an environment, a sea of microbial uh, forms. Uh, for maybe a billion and a half years, I forget the exact numbers, a billion and a half or two and a half billion years of the, the initial life of evolution, there were single cell bacteria with a little loop of DNA, much like the bacteria today. At, at about two and a half billion years into that, the bacterial, the, the variety of bacteria um, came together to form colonies, uh, not colonies. Uh, um, they became more complex bacteria. They became single cells. It's, it's a different, the terms are prokaryotic and eukaryotic. And eukaryotic. Now, the eukaryotic the emergence of the eukaryotes was um, um, uh, Carl Sagan's wife came up with the theory of endosymbiosis, which is where you have one bacteria that envelops another, which would normally it would normally that's a normal mechanism of of hunting and and uh, feeding, but instead of of, of instead of Digest. eating the bacteria, they maintain the bacteria. So the, the mitochondria, which are the descendants of bacteria that had a very efficient energy generation uh, metabolism. Mm -hmm. The electron that, transport chain. Right. And the nucleus, which was a very efficient information storage mechanism, these two things were enveloped by a bacteria that probably was a superior hunter and uh, had superior protective capability, and they became symbiotically attached to each other because they each contributed to the host bacteria an advantage, a, a survival advantage. Yeah. And at that point, about 650 million years ago, we had what's called the Cambrian explosion, mm -hmm. where all of a sudden you had this explosion of complex life forms, multicellular. And so that evolution occurred within the sea of microbes that already existed. And so inside as well as outside of these newly emergent complex organisms, you have the bacterial family. The ones that are inside depend on the organism that hosts them. It's a host um, symbiote relationship. They now depend on the host organism to feed them, to go out, gather food, and then the food comes down. They are fed. They are protected. And the more robust and healthy the host organism, the better fed they are and the more they get to spread their genetic um, code. I mean, the host organism poops sure. them out. Yeah. And so they abundantly populate the environment around. 
Now consider every single animal that exists, every bird, every lizard, every fish, every insect, every mammal, every single thing that has a mouth and a poop shoot is populated by that. And then they're populated over the course of the evolutionary time so that um, humans are said to have descended. We most certainly descended from the earliest members of the phylogenetic system. First came the round flatworms, then came the roundworms. And you move up through the, the evolutionary path through the various phylums, the lowest to the highest. Protosomes and deuterosomes. And, Yes. Okay. Uh, you need to tell me what those two. Those I don't two remember terms what protosome is, but I do remember. Or no, I think it's protosome. Basically, what it comes down to is mouth and butt. That's like the earliest like lineage you can find is like in and out, as opposed to just like, as opposed to like just there being an in and then like through osmosis it kicks it out. It's. I think it's. I think that's what deuterosome is. I could be getting it wrong. I remember okay. that from evolutionary biology. In out. I, yeah, I, I, I didn't want to confuse the issue by mentioning the hydra. The hydra is one of those very, very, very early primitive organisms that has, it's like a little tube. And it has these little tentacles at the very end that gather food particles and push them inside the tube where the digestive specialists deal with the food. And on the outside of the tube are the protective specialists uh, different tissues, basically. And of course, you got your little tentacles gathering the food at the end. They're specialized too, but they didn't have a butthole. Yeah. They 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 brought it in and they yeah. ejected it through the same opening. Yeah. And I didn't want to confuse the issue. So every living thing except the hydra, and perhaps a number of uh, descendants of the hydra, clams or mollusks or sponges or something. Anyway, so. Here's the thing, because that population of microbes that live inside you and me evolved along with the evolutionary process from now, what are the, what are the, the, in Madagascar, there are a group of animals that are frequently um, identified as our ancestor. I can never remember the damn word. The shrew? Um, uh, well, it, it's shrew-like. I know where that. It'll come I to me in a while. It's I just. I think, like after the dinosaurs, they think we turned into like, or our ancestors became shrews. If I, if I'm remembering biology correctly. Um. Shrew well, shrew. anyway, it'll yeah. come. It'll come to me. It always does. But I. That's one of those things. You know, it just. I can tell you that the length of the day. The length of the year is 365 days, five hours, 48 minutes, and 46 seconds. I read it once, and because it has a certain lyrical quality to it, I remember it. But um, the the little creatures which are identified as our descendants, and uh, many of which live in Madagascar, I can't remember the damn name. Okay, but the point is this. You start out as a shrew, and the evolutionary process takes place all the way up through the early primates and the humanity, all during that process, each of these animals had a a population of microbes inside them. And those microbes co-evolved 
with the organism that they inhabited to maintain the organism in a maximum state of health because that benefited them. They, so, so what you have is, now you heard that there are many, many more of them than there are cells in the human body, but there are also a vast number of genetic, a vast amount of genetic material beyond what the human genetic, the genome is. The human genome has X thousands of genes, but the, uh, the collected genome of all of the microbes inside you is something like 10 or 100 times as many. Now, when I first heard that, I said, well, so what? I mean, they need their genome to, to regulate their development and their, their metabolic processes. Sure, why not? How does, that, how does that affect us? But what it does is, all of the metabolic processes that those microbes um, participate, you know, that, that they, they uh, generate, um, all of those result in, in uh, metabolites that they secrete. So that essentially what you have is a situation where those microbial, that microbial population is a pharmacy is your pharmacy to keep you healthy and to modify and moderate and train your immune system. Those microbes are absolutely vital to the training of your immune system to keep you in peak health, both to make your immune system optimally efficient in in fighting off um, pathological organisms and um, and yeah well fighting off pathological organisms and keeping you healthy moderating your immune system now since the invention of antibiotics which are microbe killers mm -hmm. we've been exterminating our microbial population so that starting in 1942 with the invention of penicillin and in the intervening 75 years with the invention of dozens more, we have inflicted a catastrophe of destruction on our microbial population. And in that process, we have generated the full spectrum of what are referred to as autoimmune diseases. Mm -hmm. They've come about gradually so that people basically don't, didn't realize that these things weren't natural. They just thought the immune system's out of whack. It's attacking you. That that makes no sense. The immune system was built to attack, to protect you from attacks. From, yeah. Can I run to the restroom real quick and I'll be right back? Go for it. I need you, I need you to monologue. Take over, Jeff. Okay. You got to monologue. Well, I don't want uh, Tom to miss out on any of this uh, material. So perhaps I should... Um, favor you with uh, a bit of uh, poetry. So uh, let's start out with uh, Ozymandias. I love Ozymandias. Um, it's a failed poem, but it's not bad. Uh, 
Shelley wrote this, and here's how it goes. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them, on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor, well, those passions red which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal, these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level stands stretch far away. Okay. Excellent. We're back. What? Excellent timing. Autoimmune. Autoimmune. Back to where you were. Right. Okay. So, what we have, and this is my one of my projects, is we have the medical community, the pharmaceutical industry, accidentally. Oh, let's go through the list. A short list of approximately seventy autoimmune diseases. These are situations where your body attacks you. The system which was meant to protect you, having been horribly damaged by a combination of modern life and antibiotics and perhaps other things. People talk about diet and pollution, bad water and bad lifestyle, drugs and stuff. The autoimmune, your immune system attacks you. Let's look at them. Uh, multiple sclerosis, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease, uh, rheumatoid arthritis, uh, the whole batch of intestinal diseases, chronic uh, uh, um, inflammatory bowel disease, Crohn's disease, celiac disease, and uh, ulcerative colitis, irritable bowel syndrome. A lot of them are overlaps. Um, asthma. Uh, those are a few of them. The, the list is long. I can't remember all of them. Uh, but the point is they've been on a steep increase since the, uh, the uh, creation of antibiotics. Now, for about the last 20 years, this situation, the, the destruction of human health by the destruction of the immune system by modern life and antibiotics has been suspected, if not known, absolutely. With the invention, uh, with the, the ability to diagnose the genome, to, to uh, un, uh, unravel the genome, decode the genome, the Human Genome Project set the goal of decoding the human genome uh, back in the late 90s uh, in, with a, with the goal set to have it decoded by the year 2000. <coughs> and that cost $2 billion and took years to accomplish. And in those years, the 
speed with which the genome can uh, speed and cost. Yeah, it went down exponentially. That's Ray Kurzweil's um, whole thing about um, exponential technology. Yeah, here it is. This uh, is a record of the rate at which over the past, you can see it, 21 years, this um, the genome uh, analysis has rapidly decreased right here, from here to here, or from here to here. It's decreased from uh, $10 million to $10,000, and now it's about down below $1,000 to uh, evaluate uh, the human genome. And the speed of evaluation is now uh, a week, maybe less. So uh, that, uh, ex that capability meant that they enabled researchers to analyze the microbiome. The old method would be to take a stool sample, to smear, to filter it and smear it on a Petri dish and wait for the bacterial specimens to grow, and then you could examine them under the microscope and, and identify them. It's slow, it's incomplete. It, it, it was nothing, nothing like the ability to analyze it that uh, the genome analysis, the modern genome analysis technology uh, allows. And so it was discovered, it was researched on to determine what the composition of the genome was and how it varied across populations. And what we found out is that the primitive populations in places like the Amazon jungle uh, or, the, uh, or the depths of Africa, where modern medicine hadn't penetrated, that the population was vastly more diverse, that um, Americans, modern people in modern society have about four to 500 different bacterial species. And the, uh, these primitive people with no exposure to antibiotics or modern medicine have about 1,500. And what, what we're getting at here is the fact that all of the destruction of human health, we associate, well, okay, again, not all, but in my view, a substantial portion of the damage to human health has been the result of the destruction of this natural symbiotic population that keeps people in the Amazon and in Africa in peak health. And if you go to a YouTube video where they, you will see the folks in the Amazon depicted, you'll notice that there are no fat people. There are no sick people. Uh, I was watching a video and this fellow went out with a child to go hunt monkeys or something. And the gentleman was like in his 60s. And he looked like he was in his 30s. So we have this situation where human health has been severely damaged both by the what's called the, this, the modern life, the, the attribution of the problems with human health to our modern living circumstances is called the hygiene hypothesis. We move out of the state of nature into a more um, controlled environment, a house, a city. Things are kept clean. 
the normal flora and fauna of the jungle are are removed. You may get some trees planted along the the road in Brooklyn. The tree grows in Brooklyn. Yeah. Uh, but in general, we've sterilized our environment. And what happens then is that in a state of nature, the toddler emerges from the birth canal and is exposed to all these bacterial species in the environment. His mother carries on her body all of the bacterial species because she had had been exposed to them as a child. So the, the, the lineage continues this. The child is suckling all over the woman's body, the mother's body, uh, and, and emerging from the birth canal, uh, he's exposed to the first set of microbes outside the uterine environment that uh, are within the, the birth canal. Um, and again, we have um, evidence of the problem of, of the value of that versus the problem that happens when you have cesarean section. A cesarean section does not do that. Kids that come out with a cesarean section have distinctly higher levels of asthma. What is asthma? Asthma is a defective immune response to allergens in the environment because the, the immune system has not been trained to not overreact that way. Okay. Now, by 2015, the evidence for this idea that human health is um, and and lack of health is related to the lack of diversity, the the, the uh, robust diversity of the microbiome found in the state of nature and the damaged diversity, limited diversity of those who live in a modern environment. Because just as the, the child in the state of nature is gathering microbes from its mother, who has a full complement of them, with every year, with every um, a generation living in, an, in, in a modern environment, the amount of microbial diversity decreases. Each time a mother gives birth, that child grows up to be another mother, that who gives birth, that child grows up to be another mother. And each iteration, as the mother has less diversity, the child has less diversity. And then it continues. That's that along with the sterilization of our environments is what's called and, and the resulting problem with human immune system related health issues is called the hygiene hypothesis. And an element of that, uh, a bit of evidence that, that, that supports that is that children who are brought up in an urban, in, in a rural setting, particularly those who grow up on farms where they are, um, exposed to the full spectrum of microbes and poop from chickens and cows and goats and pigs and beef, uh, they have a, a, a very substantially less lower uh, incidence of immune uh, system disorders, particularly asthma. Uh, asthma is the, the one um, element, the immune system variation that, that uh, I've read research to, that establishes that. Okay, so now what do we have? We have a system, situation, 
where our health is severely damaged by a combination of the way we live, but then really, really uh, destroyed by uh, extensive use of antibiotics. So if the medical community knows this and continues to administer antibiotics um, uh, with great frequency and doesn't inform the patient or take into consideration the effect that has on, on the health of the microbiome, aren't they contributing to a, a violation of their fundamental medical ethics? Have you ever heard of anyone who got uh, prescribed antibiotics being told by the doctor, now this is going to affect your microbiome. So in order to protect your microbiome, we need to have a sample of your healthy microbiome prior to the administration of the antibiotics so that after you've gone through the course of the antibiotics and solved the infection problem, wherever that happens to be, and, and, and I'm not arguing here against the use of antibiotics. They're lifesavers. But you need to, 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 uh, you need to uh, account for the problem of, of, of the damage to your microbiome when you do that. So they ever hear of a doctor saying it's going to damage your microbiome. So we need to have a sample of your microbiome healthy before you take the antibiotics. And when the antibiotic course is over, we will reintroduce that population that we took from you so as to restore it. Have you ever heard of anybody telling have, have you had antibiotics? Yes. Of course, we all have. So this is, I mean, I don't want to say that either the medical profession or the pharmaceutical industry uh, are bad actors. But this feels to me, and has felt since I discovered it, like um, a real um, offense, a malpractice, a negligence. A, you know, it's, 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 it's wrong. It, it, we should, uh, and, and they also haven't, address the fact that we live with a damaged microbiome to begin with because of modern life, just without the, the antibiotics. There is a disease called Clostridium difficile, uh, which is shortened to C. diff. Mm -hmm. It is most frequently found in older people who have been hospitalized. And remember, older people have lived long enough to have had several, many doses of antibiotics and therefore had their microbiome repeatedly uh, damaged. And C. diff is a pathological organism that colonizes the digestive tract, lower intestine mostly, uh, and 450,000 people every year suffer from this. And about twenty-five to 30,000 
that was the, let's just say 20,000, in the range of 25,000 of them die. And they ran an experiment sometime back when they began to uh, conceive of the problem where they gave microbiome um, replenishment therapy. It's actually called a fecal transplant. Mm-hmm. But I try to stay away from the terminology no, no, because not all. It's very real. It's a fecal transplant. Absolutely. They had an experiment where they took two groups of people who were suffering from C. diff and they gave half of them the standard antibiotic attempt to destroy the microbe and half of them they gave fecal transplant. The success rate for the fecal transplant was 95% with the results um, being manifested within 24 hours. And so they had to cut short the, uh, the experiment because clearly it was not ethical to continue to not give that treatment to the control group. To the, uh, they probably had three groups. They probably, no. But anyway, I've, I know of the fecal transplant group and the, uh, the, the antibiotic group. They cut it short and gave the antibiotic group the fecal transplants. Okay. Now, if 450,000 people a year get C. diff and 25,000 of them die, how many of those 450,000 people get a fecal transplant? I don't know, but I would think that it would be absolutely standard and and compulsory to provide that. Now, there's one company in the United States. Oh, there was a period between about 2000 and 2013 when clinicians around the country, all kinds of different clinicians, you know, there are homeopathic people and there are dietary clinicians and there, you know, I mean, outside of the standard medical MD kind of establishment, there are a bunch of other folks who do treatments that are non-standard. And many, many of these people were ever more frequently giving fecal transplants. Until 2013, when the Food and Drug Administration held a little meeting, which was attended by the public, in which they wanted to address the issue of fecal transplants. And they assembled a panel from the pharmaceutical industry. And our recent experience with COVID has revealed the close association between the FDA and various other health regulatory agencies and the pharmaceutical industry. I don't want to say anything except that they're criminals. Okay, so in 2013, they assembled the panel. They asked, what should we do? The panel said, well, we we have to restrict this activity because it's making it difficult for us to find donors with healthy microbiomes for us to use in order to generate our, our, our pharmaceutical products to help 
you know, remediate the variety of diseases that that uh, a restored microbiome or, or a product developed from a healthy micro, microbiome might allow. So the FDA banned any clinician from giving a fecal transplant outside of a clinical trial, uh, uh, which is to say a clinical trial of the pharmaceutical industry. So uh, I heard about that. There was a woman, her name is Catherine Duff, and she established the uh, Fecal Transplant Foundation. I think that's the name of it. I got on the phone with her um, because I had had uh, abdominal surgery. I had a situation that required and before they diagnosed it correctly, I got, and afterwards, I had seven courses of Jeff, you froze. And um, there, we had a chat. Okay, you're back. Okay. Um, you had several courses. Of Yes. So I wanted to get my microbiome back. And I looked around for people who were working in that area, found Catherine Duff, who established the Fecal Transplant Foundation. I got her on the phone. She told me about that 2013 meeting. Uh, she had personally attended it. And so I looked at this situation and I thought, this is criminal. It's just, it's just criminal. It's criminal that the doctors who are not supposed to do any harm, do no harm, uh, and are supposed to give you informed consent, tell you all of the situation, the benefits and issues and risks. Don't tell you anything about that when they give you antibiotics. And that the pharmaceutical industry has now banned this activity, oh, with the exception of treatment for C. diff. The, you know, but again, I asked the question, how many of those 450,000 people are treated with the fecal transplant rather than the already standardized course of antibiotics, which, by the way, only work 35% of the time? Mm -hmm. I think that number is right. Somebody might correct me. It might be different. So I wanted to get my microbiome back. And I looked around here in Mexico to see if there was someone who could give me a fecal transplant. Nobody would. Well, I didn't go extensively. I didn't ask a thousand different people. But I had one woman who had given me a colonoscopy. You know, I'm an old guy. You need to check, see what's going on. And I asked her if she could handle that. She said no. And uh, um, I checked with another doctor uh, to see if I could get him to write me a prescription. There is one company. It's called Open Microbiome. Open Microbiome? It's in Cambridge, Massachusetts. They search around for good microbiome samples, and they create both an opportunity for a fresh sample for transplant and for pills. Basically, it's, you know, it's, it's just a microbial, a collection of microbes, mm -hmm. like, um, what's the term? Um, for, you know, people take pills. Probiotics? 
Yes, exactly. Uh, and it's, it's it basically it's a probiotic. And uh, so I got a doctor to issue me a prescription. And I wrote to them and said, I have a prescription. Can you give me, can you sell me some of the pills? And they said, no, I can't do it. Either it was they can't do it for Mexico or whatever. Okay, so now we have this situation where it's fairly well established that human health in modern societies is being catastrophically damaged. And um, the uh, Food and Drug Administration is corrupted and won't allow the treatment that might have some value in remediating it. So I made it my project to go uh, to send out people to the various places in the world where one might find a high quality microbiome uh, and see if I could get donors in those areas um, to provide a sample, which I would then analyze, have analyzed for the quality and then develop uh, um, an infrastructure for collecting and distributing the, this as a, as a health uh, a remediation, a microbiome remediation health product. And I was right on the brink of doing that, sending them out when the pandemic hit and made traveling around difficult. Uh, and the mechanism, the, the plan was to use those places identified in the book called The Blue Zone. Familiar with it? No, sir. No. Okay, gentleman wrote a book about those areas in the world where people live to be a ripe old age, I mean really old, and yet maintain a high level of health um, all the way and identified the factors that are common to these different places. Okinawa is one of the places. There's actually a community in Loma Linda, California of Seventh-day Adventists. I hope it's that and not Jehovah's Witnesses. I can never separate the two. Um, then there's a place called the Nicoya Peninsula of Costa Rica and a variety of islands, uh, Greek islands, which all were identified and given the, the term blue zones. So I was going to send people out there, collect samples, uh, evaluate the, uh, the microbiomes and see if I couldn't collect um, begin begin a situation where I would collect it for the very, very substantial number of people in the first world who need that replenishment. Um, and uh, I'm again, I am on the cusp of doing that as the COVID business finally seems to have uh, faded, is fading away. So that's one of those projects that I mentioned to you mm -hmm. and which I hope if we can get uh, some, uh, I'm a little hot here. I'm going to take off the sorcerer's cloak. You're more than all right, my friend. Uh, so if I can get uh, some publicity, because uh, I'm going to issue, issue a token that people can purchase that will put them first in line to receive this um, this therapeutic uh, um, transplant. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. 
material, therapeutic material, or whatever you want to call it. Oh my, look at that. There's something going on. Can you see that yeah, up the there? Yeah, a little bit at the corners. Yeah. yeah okay, not, anyway. Not important. No, oh no, but it's it's kind of fun. You know, the aliens come through that wormhole they come space the there. Wormhole right there. Pop in. <laughs> it's yeah. It's, but I think <clears throat> I do like what you pointed out, and I've talked about this before with Dr. Malone and Dr. McCullough, is I don't think what we saw with COVID was unique. I think what we saw was the status quo. We saw what happens when a damaged immune system um, is challenged by um, by a, a pathogen. And one of the questions that the COVID phenomena generated, and which I haven't heard anybody talk about, is why were old people so much more susceptible than young people? I mean, what is the fundamental reason for the children to be almost completely free of COVID infection and problems? And as you get older, only as you get older or comorbidities, um, do you become more and more susceptible to the most intense um, destructive uh, pathology. Have you heard anybody talk about that? There's something different between old people and young people. And if you've been listening to what I just told you about the microbiome, you understand that old people, not only do their immune systems diminish with age, but they have had their immune systems damaged by a lifetime of exposure to antibiotics. Whereas younger people, not so much. So there's that. And if people uh, at, at some point, uh, I will have that crypto token generated so that people can contribute. Uh, and uh, the benefit of that will be first in line and uh, some degree of discount. The, the interesting thing about this, when I think about the pharmaceutical company's role, is that I hate to say it, I don't think it's intentional. I think it's a kind of evolutionary, natural evolutionary result of the way the world works is that the pharmaceutical company wants to have, would, would be delighted to have arrived at the sweet spot where you say sick enough so that you have to buy their products to try to be healthy, but not so sick that you can't work. No, they really want to keep you as uh, robust contributors to their bottom line, which means you have to stay sick. Repeat customer, uh, monthly subscriber. Yeah, yeah. Um, by the way, the uh, autoimmune diseases, one of the things I needed to, to uh, mention was type 2 diabetes. Now, it's entirely possible that type 2 diabetes is not the result is not itself an autoimmune disease, but that the obesity is the, uh, the is, is the problem, and the obesity generates the type two diabetes. There's a relationship for sure. Now, of course, people will 
will add that diet, our diet, modern diet, fast food, sugar, fats, lack of exercise. I'm a terrible, terrible contributor to that. Tons and tons of sugar. Uh, yeah, yeah. Okay, fine. Uh, um, I'm not saying that the uh, the microbiome destruction is the only factor involved. I think it's probably the main factor, but that's just my guess, and maybe it's because of my bias. Okay, um, so there are some interesting data points in regards to obesity that deserve mention. You know they give antibiotics to cattle? Mm -hmm. Why do you think they do that? Keep them healthy? Keep them from becoming sick? Keep them from being diseased? That would be a natural conclusion, but it would be wrong. Okay. They do it because cattle that get antibiotics fatten up. The result of being given antibiotics is that they get fat. Now, there's a second data point. I've done a bunch of research on this, and I'm not a really well-organized person. I can't jump in and find the precise paper, but there was a paper where they had two groups of mice, mice that are raised in a completely sterile environment. Uh, I mean, these are mice used as experimental model subjects. Uh, they, uh, they proliferate. They, you know, mice generate more mice very rapidly. Mm -hmm. And so they're raised by companies in a sterile environment so that they can be sent to various researchers to, to study them. And then there are specialty mice with uh, which have had their genetic material modified to create uh, disease models so they can study those models. Well, if you take a mice who has been raised in a sterile environment and you give it food without, um, without um, uh, restriction, they get fat. They get really fat. Now, if you take that same mouse and you give it a fecal transplant from a wild mouse, they skinny back up again, hmm. just rapidly, which tells us that the obesity, that the, the digestive process, which stores, uses the energy that you of nutrient and uh, and and either uses it but it maintains it maintains the the lean healthy mouse lean and healthy your microbiome does that without that your body doesn't have that regulatory information which is provided to it by the microbiome and it, it just it just gets fat now we in the United States have an obesity epidemic. And people will say we eat too much, we sit around too much at work, we sit in our cars, we don't walk, we don't bicycle, we don't exercise, we eat the wrong foods, lifestyle, the whole bit. 
And I have no argument with that, clearly. But there are people who simply cannot stay thin. They, 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 it doesn't matter. And this is true with the, in those mouse models, is that it's the, the mice who have the natural microbiome can eat just as much food as the ones that don't, and they don't get fat. So I look at everybody in the United States, the obesity epidemic and the type 2 diabetes epidemic, and I think, isn't this the result of a damaged microbiome? So um, there's a lot of evidence to support that contention. And consequently, wouldn't it be amazing, wouldn't it be a, a, a social good of immense value if you could arrange to replenish everyone with a, in, a, in the Western world, several billion people, who have these health issues with an optimal microbiome and eliminate a whole raft of these autoimmune disorders. You know, nothing, nothing will lower the cost of healthcare more than having people be healthy. Mm -hmm. So there's a huge financial benefit, but separate from that, quality of life benefit if you could do that. Now, one of the things that is not clear, not established, possibly not valid, is that you can give a person later in life a replenished microbiome, and then you can have them, you gotta remember that if you give them a good microbiome, you have to feed that microbiome the things that it needs yeah, yeah. to stay healthy. So you need to do two things. You need to replenish the microbiome, and then you have to adjust their diet a little bit so that the microbiome was adequately fed. However, there is no guarantee, and I haven't found really any good research to support it definitively, that doing so will restore your immune system uh, to health. Make it stop attacking you uh, and, and, and do the thing it's supposed to do. It's keep you healthy and, and ward off uh, uh, pathogenic uh, micro uh, infections. But what is, and, and the reason that isn't established is because it's in the very first three to five years of life when the immune system is trained to do that, to, to be an optimal a system that maintains your health and protects you. So even if you cannot help the people who are already had their immune systems damaged, you can create a situation where every, uh, every new human being entering into the world, in, in living in a modern environment, nevertheless has access to the appropriate micro, microbial population to optimize their health and their immune system's effectiveness. So a product for, for, for infants, children, to populate them with the appropriate microbiome would at least provide a situation where the 
the new generations are healthy. <clears throat> and that that is the project that I initially embarked on and would have continued and initiated actively had the pandemic not struck when it did. And I'm about to go back to that. Um, there are there are a few minor regulatory issues. Um, if I could find an appropriate microbiome source, and I'm sure I'm sure I can. Um, how can I make it available to say American citizens? Uh, I'm in contact with the people who are actively involved in the microbiome restoration project, people who have Crohn's disease, people who have irritable bowel syndrome, people who have MS, people who have all the situation that a damaged microbiome causes them. Most of them, most of them, the gastrointestinal issues, because the first place it gets blasted when you take oral microbiome, um, oral antibiotics, is the gastrointestinal area. The uh, the concentration of the poisons in their microbiome poisons, their their microbial killers, is the microbiome, and then it spreads out through your body, absorbed by the natural absorption of your intestines, and spread to the various regions of your body to affect uh, in, uh, infections wherever. I had a dog bite; my hand got infected, and I took oral antibiotics. Now imagine if I need to kill the microbes in my infected hand and I take oral antibiotics, they have to be absorbed. Mm -hmm. They have to be spread throughout my entire body and they still have to have sufficient concentration when they get to my hand to do the job. So uh, that reflects, that kind of indicates how intensely concentrated uh, they are in the gut, yeah, and 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 that's why people have all of these uh, these uh, irritable bowel syndrome, ulcerative colitis, uh, the whole um, the whole suite of of uh, delicate bowel problems. Um, and I'll add another detail, one last detail. Uh, your intestinal system, actually your entire from the mouth to the poop chute, is lined with a mucous membrane, mucus coating. In the intestine, upper and lower, this mucus coating is thick enough that it surrounds all of the actual tissue. It's a, it's, it's, it's a, it's, I wouldn't call it a barrier, but it is. I mean, before anything that enters your body can get at that tissue, it has to first be absorbed into the mucus coating and by diffusion make its way to, for instance, in the small intestine, which absorbs nutrients, the cilia. Mm -hmm. you know, the tiny little... Uh, um, tentacle-like items that mm. shape like a finger and all around the outside, the tiny little hairs so that there's a, there's a, a massive amount of surface area. 
and it's embedded in a, in a mucus coating, which extends past the end. Now, what happens when your microbial population is damaged, um, there are two substances that a healthy microbiome generate as a result of their metabolic activity, glutamates and acetates. And glutamates and acetates feed the very mucus-generating cells of the intestines. If you deplete the microbiome of those glutamate and acetate microbes, then the mucus membranes don't generate mucus and the tissue of both the small intestine and the large intestine become exposed, directly exposed. There's no mucus there. There are patches of mucus-free areas, and, and that's what causes these to become inflamed and infected. And it's called uh, leaky gut syndrome. And so what you, one of the things you can do to, uh, to treat leaky gut syndrome is to take supplements, glutamate supplements, that then feed the microbes. The microbes proliferate. They generate, no, 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 no. It doesn't feed the microbes. It feeds the, uh, the mucus generating cells of the intestines. And then they generate more mucus and the, uh, they cover the open patchy areas the, uh, and then your sensitivity and inflammation are diminished. But the alternative is to reseed you with the microbes that uh, generate glutamate and acetate. And these microbes feed on fiber, undigestible fiber. And if you have the microbes there and you feed them fiber, they will generate the glutamate and acetate on their own that will feed the uh, mucus generating cells and you will have a healthy gut. Um, and that's why my wife and I both take um, psyllium husk mm-hmm. every day, twice a day. And uh, there's another substance called inulin, which uh, is generated from the uh, blue agave cactus. And there's a substantial um, agricultural effort by which uh, the blue agaves are harvested and the inulin extracted and offered for sale. And we take some of that a couple of times a day. And I don't, I don't say that there's any miraculous thing going on here, but, but the logic is inescapable. Uh, if you have the microbes, you need to feed them. If you don't feed them, they don't proliferate. If they don't proliferate, the the metabolic pro, uh, metabolic byproducts that they generate that feed the various cells of the intestine are not substantial enough to help you maintain a good mucus mucus barrier. It's, it's really like that. So uh, that's a, that's my project. Uh, one the project that I started with. That was the project I started with, and if and I'm going to use the crypto token generation as a means of uh, funding it, but I don't need to because the truth of the matter is it's really not that difficult. You send somebody to the Nicoya Peninsula, you have them 
call up the health, health authorities in in San Jose, Costa Rica, the capital. You tell them what it is you want to do. Have them put you in touch with the local people on the Decoya Peninsula. You speak with them. You tell them what you want to do. Then you have them locate folks who would be willing to provide the collection, the local collection activity, collection services. You go down there, you hire them, provide them with the necessary materials for collecting the microbiome samples. Then you ship those uh, to, um, I'm going to have, I've got a, several labs here in the vicinity of Mexico, the vicinity of uh, Cabo, where I live, uh, who will do the analysis to see what we got. And when we locate high quality donors, we'll begin to collect and process it for a distribution. And, And here we get to a piece that's really, really fun if not interesting, interesting and fun. Collecting poop is not expensive. Poop is generated in abundance throughout the world. Absolutely. There's a lot of it. And the places where you would get it from are generally places that live in a rather traditional environment. Which means... They're not big city, money-hungry folks. And, and I don't want to be um, exploitative, but really, if you take a person who lives in a relatively austere environment and you say, we would like you to come and take your morning elimination in our collection area, and we will give you 20 American dollars every morning that you come in because your poop is a miracle medicine for the uh, the the developed world. Um, everybody is happy, and 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 can you imagine just just the social sense of 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 doing a global social good of restoring the health of people worldwide simply by taking you <laughs> taking your morning dump at the collection center. When you're a relatively uh, person of modest means, you know I don't want to, I don't want to use the word poor, because poverty is a kind of a thing. Uh, being poor is a, a, a term applied to folks who are money hungry in the Western world who think always are thinking about money and sure. and, and grasping for it. And poverty can be a spiritual thing. We're spiritually poor in the United States. And um, those folks are spiritually rich, mm-hmm. but money poor. And so we get we get a nice balance. They do something really, really good for the developed world. And 20 bucks a day just for taking your morning elimination in the collection center. It, you know, I, I like it. Now, maybe we can pay them more. Uh, I am, uh, last I heard, each donation provides three, three treatment doses. But you, know, you take the poop. You see, and again, this is kind of fun because we're talking about good shit. <laughs> you know, they've got good shit, right? Good shit. 
And and as a people live in the modern world, we don't pay a lot of attention. We go into the bathroom, we sit down, you know, we do our business and we wipe our backside and, and we hit the, you know, if, if, if mo- for the most part, we never see it. The, uh, the paper covers it in the toilet bowl and you get up and you hit the thing and, and, you know, we don't want to, we don't want to deal with it. Yeah. Occasionally we get a little bit of an, our fingers and we go, Ew, yeah. and we go and wash. But remember that, um, that beautiful dinner you had at the Chinese restaurant or the French restaurant has never been anywhere except in intimate contact with you. So when it comes out the other end, is it really that nasty? Basically, it's partially digested food with digestive enzymes and a microbial population. I always think about <clears throat> go to like a really hot girl on Instagram. They're always, they're always posting their meal. This is what I had yeah. for breakfast. I can never not see. They're just telling you what they're going to shit tomorrow. And it instantly <laughs> makes them... <laughs> So so much less sexy. It's just like I had eggs and t- I'm not shaming them. It, it's a human thing, but I can no yeah. longer look at like here's my avocado toast, and I'm like, you're just showing me what your shit is. That's all you're doing is you're just giving me updates on what your shit is tomorrow. Well, now you're you're one strange puppy there, bro. I know I am. I know I am. That's why I, that's hey. Well, you're on this podcast, so by association, you're you're, you're with me. But I I look long ago. I I. Uh, I came to the uh, conclusion that I'm a, I'm a strange puppy too. Yeah. Well, it's no fun being normal. I was going to say, you can, you call it, you call it good shit. You're like, you could do like an advertising campaign. Like, are you full of shit? Question mark. Would you like to be? That's how you'd sell your microbiota. I was just trying to think of advertising campaigns for you. Um, The possibilities are limitless. So, Oh yeah, the advertising campaign. Ah, I love it. Oh yeah, it's going to be easy. It's going to write itself. When so now that March fifth, twenty twenty two, and uh, seemingly Vladimir Putin has done what the vaccines couldn't do and just end COVID national or globally, right? It's uh, the the Putin <laughs> well, that's vaccine. an odd way of looking at it. He certainly displaced it from a public view. He's he's absolutely. I'm not I'm not defending anything he's doing. I'm not trying to go into the geopolitics of it. I, I I'll mean, do that. I mean, just culturally, he's yes. he's ended COVID. He's just it's gone. He's done it better than ivermectin, better than Dr. Malone. Putin's ended. Mm-hmm. So there's there's a there's a 2022 twist. I don't think any of us saw saw coming. Putin ended COVID, but. So now that it is coming to an end, though, and seeing if we can avoid nuclear war, when do you think you'll be able to kick uh, kick this project into high gear? Oh, uh, okay. Two things. Immediately, the answer is immediate. Immediately. But I'm not one of these guys, you know, some young guy uh, trying to build a career and become a multimillionaire, billionaire or anything. Uh, who's willing to work 80 hours a week and sleep on the factory floor. Um, I am Asperger's like Elon, you know, and Elon, I, you know, I I love the guy. Uh, He's just building the future and he's just an amazing character, but I understand uh, he's an Asperger's guy too. Mm -hmm. I actually consider that I have a variant of Asperger's. It's called pain in the Asperger's. 
Okay. Give folks a moment to chuckle. Okay. Now I'll move on. Um, I'm not an 80 hour a week guy. I'm retired. I like being retired. What I want to do is I want to hire other people to do the work. I can afford it. And so I can stay retired. Now I have been, I hired a, a person I'm training to be my executive assistant. And, um, we spent the past year or so just going through the paperwork to establish a business in Mexico. You know, in the United States, you write a check, <clears throat> send it to Delaware, and you're good to go. Just, you know, boom, you've got an LLC, Limited Liability Corporation. Uh in Mexico, no, 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 it doesn't work that way. You have to describe everything you want to do, and that paperwork uh, description, uh, uh, it's in that legalese that makes your head hurt, you know. So uh, there's that, there's registration of this and that. Um, uh, I mean, it, it and, and of course, you know, submit stuff. You submit the paperwork to a bureaucracy, and like, it doesn't come back the next day. It doesn't come back the next month. So we spent this year and a half so establishing the business, getting the license, the business all licensed. Last week, she went through another one of those paperwork routines in order to go and get the uh, license registration number that you need like a social security number kind of, but for business that you need in order to open a bank account in the name of the business. Fine. And so I have had to, I'm not, I'm a, a naturally impatient person. I had the idea and I wanted to go now. I wanted to put her on a plane to San Jose in Costa Rica to begin collecting stuff down there. Although I did want her to do as much of the preliminary work by telephone first, so that when she got down there, the folks, she would know where to stay, know who to talk to, stuff like that. Uh, but, but I've had to learn patience because of the inevitable glacial pace that uh, bureaucracies um, inflict on you in generating any kind of uh, of uh, paperwork uh, license with activity. But I'm there. I broke through in December. We filed the last papers to establish the business. Then we went to the next step was the paperwork to establish to, to register and get that number for uh, for our uh, banking financial uh, activities. And uh, so that happened last week and we're waiting. I don't know if they generated the number immediately after she went to the office or whether the number will be generated subsequently. Sometimes they do, these things can happen quickly. But uh, so that's where it is now. And I haven't wanted to spend a lot of money when when I started back in 2017. I spent three quarters of a million dollars hiring very high-end people who charged $150 an hour. 
and, uh, uh, and what I learned, I got a business education. I spent three quarters of a million dollars getting educated as how to conduct a business. And what you do when you're conducting a business is you make damn sure the people you hire can do, can deliver. Yeah. The folks I hired couldn't deliver. Now, you know, that hurt. So when I got through with that and dispatched them back into their own lives, I decided that from then on in, I would be the one doing as much of it as I could. And basically, I would hire one executive assistant to do as much as that person could do. Um, she was a young woman here who was trained in languages and was bilingual Spanish and English. And I needed her in order to interact with the government and a variety of people down here in Mexico for the language assistance. I can talk to people who speak English. She can talk to people who speak Spanish and that way I can function. But I also decided after I had identified her as a translation person, she was young, she was strong, she was energetic, she was bold, she was smart. My God, the Mexican women are so solid. I mean, I, I, I'm not talking hot. I'm talking they live in an austere environment, and like all women everywhere, they need to be prepared to, to take care of their children. Sure. So there's no way they can be frilly and ditzy and anything. No bullshit. There's no, there's no room for error in their lives. If their man can't support them, they have to support themselves. And so, I mean, strong, rock solid, unbelievable women down here. I just, and of course, so I'm a sexist, basically. I, I, I prefer women. Yeah, all the time. Who cares? Man? That, that's that's a progressive view in in twenty twenty two. You're you're a exactly. progress, you're a progressive sexist man. <laughs> Who cares? Okay, so um, I can get to it immediately, and uh, and I basically have reached the point where I'm ready to to step out and make that happen. Now we're two hours and fifteen minutes. You probably got about two hours of content now. I think right about now I'm going to add that that little uh, that little uh, correction on my previous two fifty six the hash a uh, little bit of construction noise in the background there um, in our first uh, podcast I said that the SHA which stands for secure hashing algorithm or secure hash algorithm, the SHA 256 algorithm generates a 64-bit string. That's wrong. It generates a 64-character string because in computer parlance, bit and byte have very specific meanings. For me to say a 64-bit string, it, 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 it's not accurate. I wanted to correct that. I said it over and over again in describing how the SHA-256 algorithm generates, reduces any finite data set to a 64-character string 
these are alphanumeric characters. And the alphanumeric part comes because when you're talking about hexadecimal, you need to have an additional six characters beyond the zero to nine numeric characters. So when you describe the string of characters, you have to use the term 64 character string of alphanumeric characters. So if anybody goes and looks at the previous podcast and hears me say 64-bit string, I apologize, I got it wrong. Okay, so it's a 64 alphanumeric character string that the SHA-256 algorithm reduces any finite data set to. Boom, done. Okay. And... uh, So now we're two hours in. If you want to um, uh, to close our session today, sure, uh, and then schedule another one where I will begin to describe the second project, which is probably as important as the microbiome replenishment project. I'd love to. actually, actually, let me give you a little, uh, a little taste or maybe, maybe we'll just keep running. Okay. My original idea in establishing a clinic down here in Mexico was to do the microbiome replenishment. Uh, but about a year ago, year and a half, I stumbled on something recent advance in medical activity, research, um, that is equal in importance, maybe even more important. No, equal in importance. If restoring the health of the entire first world is important, then this second thing is as big, as important as that. And by the way, Anyone listening who wants to take advantage of this activity, I don't own it. I only want to see it happen. I am quite prosperous, and I don't need anything more. And if somebody wants to take this and roll with it themselves, I won't look on it as if they took it from me. I have no no possessive quality, no possessive attitude towards us. I couldn't do a patent or, you know, uh, uh, I couldn't control it like an IP property, uh, intellectual property thing. And I don't want to. I just want to see it happen uh, because of the benefit, the social benefit. So, okay, let me go to number two. (laughs) I would say as for the We'll definitely schedule, and I would say give a preview. Let's not go into it all now, because okay, two, two hours you get out of it's going to get lost. It's going to get lost. Absolutely, absolutely. So here's the preview. Since the beginning of human history, people have been looking for the fountain of youth. Nobody will. Nobody that I know of is is enthusiastic about getting old, about getting decrepit about dying. <clears throat> there are people who have 
a strong spiritual belief who consider that this is merely a temporary existence of the spirit and that we return to the energy of the creator and that death is part of life and that there's no, nothing to be, you know, you don't need to be scared of death. Nevertheless, <clears throat> excuse me, there are folks who would like to find the fountain of youth. They would like to find a way of dealing with the decline of age. <clears throat> and within the last 20 years, there have been a number of futurists who have decided to look at the process of aging as if it were a pathology, mm -hmm. as if it were something that we don't need to accept as just the natural and unavoidable <clears throat> course of things. That they could you know, try to figure out ways to reduce or just or slow down or even reverse the aging process. And they go under the heading anti-aging activities, anti-aging. Well, about a year and a half ago, uh, <clears throat> and, and the medical profession, which always for the longest time banned any concept of uh, therapy to remediate aging, uh, they, they wouldn't allow aging to be defined as a disease process, nor anything uh, advertised as a mechanism for um, interfering in that process. That was all scam according to them and, and not, not uh, legitimate. But in the last 20 years, as people have been looking more closely with the genomic uh, advances and uh, the analytical advances, um, they've begun to uh, look at the concept of dealing with aging as if it were uh, uh, um, something that could be um, remediated, dealt with, reduced, diminished. Well, let's go, um, and, and within the last year, a process has been discovered based on the old uh, research, which went under the heading of parabiosis. Have you heard of it? Mm -hmm. Okay. Parabiosis, and that has allowed, um, using technology that already exists, to duplicate the anti-aging results that were achieved by some very, very interesting experiments, which I think started back in 1972. Don't hold me to that number. Just look up parabiosis on Wikipedia and you'll see, you can track down the history of it. And uh, <clears throat> it now appears that the, the uh, anti-aging uh, mechanism identified by early experiments in parabiosis has now been identified. And uh, with the equipment, the technology available today, and which has been um, available for 30 years, 
there is an opportunity to diminish the process that causes the decline of aging. To, uh, I won't say eliminate it completely, but there's a very clear experimental results that show a robust return of all organ systems to a state more characteristic of a young, uh, a younger, younger animal. And, and what this means is that every human being on the earth who is going to suffer inevitably the onset and decline of age becomes a, a client, a potential client for this process. I mean, that's a big market. And I tell you, every old person, you don't need this, bro. You know, you're still young and healthy and robust and you're engaged in all the sort of activities that young people who feel immortal are engaged in. And God bless you. But every old person, you don't have to, you know, you find me an old person who says, oh, I love being old. I love getting weaker every day. I love uh, losing my memory, my medical, my mental capacity. I love not being able to hear anymore, uh, not focus and, you know, and suffer all the insults of age. You find me that person. That's the only person who doesn't want access to this, uh, this uh, therapy. And uh, so I immediately jumped on that puppy and said, you know, this, the microbiome thing requires a certain amount of outreach, collection, processing, discovery. But this requires nothing. It's immediately and instantly available. And so that's, uh, that's project number two, which actually got bumped up to project number one when the pandemic prevented me from sending people out to collect, uh, collect good shit. Yeah, it sounds like uh, <clears throat> I was reading about yeah biomedical gerontology, like Ray Kurzweil, Dr. Terry Grossman, Aubrey de Grey. Yeah, they were all looking at those things, right? Resveratrol, citalel-carnitine, alpha-lipoic acid, telomeres, reduced caloric restriction, the CERT, SIRT, CERT1 gene. I was fascinated with all of this with their early. You're already deep into it. Exactly. I was, I was into it in high school. Yeah, man. I was, I was fascinated by all of that. Resveratrol. Uh, yeah. NAC, yep. all the, yeah. Reduce the oxidation of the mitochondria because the mitochondria as it becomes oxidized, accelerates yeah. oxidation. Yeah. No, it's, 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 it's fascinating and it's absolutely L glutathione. I think that's one of the big ones and all the guys, uh, I think Zuckerberg, I think Bezos, I think they all get their daily injections and stuff. And uh, yeah, yeah, it's a, uh, it's like like Kurzweil says, it's a, uh, it's something that's going to crash on the scene, and uh, it's going to appear as if it came out of nowhere. But and the the analogy I always use on this podcast is stolen from from Kurzweil is it's like a tsunami for ninety nine percent of its life you don't see it. It's the it's the last one percent that all of a sudden the whole world knows about it, and it's like it's been traveling for hours. We just we know about it because the final ten seconds. That's with all technology, and that's been going on with biomedical gerontology for 
probably, yeah, coming up on 72. So, yeah, 50 years now. And it's just, it's going to start to crash on the shore. And it all of a sudden, it's going to be here. Yeah. No, it's, uh, it's insane. Yeah, no. It's, uh, I think they, they argue, like, the first person to live past 1,000 years is probably already alive. Probably. Yeah, yeah. So, I think that would be an excellent place for us to close off today's session and uh, sort of like say, okay, now the next time we gather, we will go into that anti-aging revolution in depth. Hell yeah. Yeah, I'm excited. That would be a great podcast. Absolutely. I've had on one physician that was in the field of uh, biogerontology. But we never got around to a second episode. I've been trying to get him back on, so I'd love to do it. I've uh, I've been trying to do this. So, Mr. Jeff Davis, I will send you an email. We will uh, schedule another episode. I'm trying to think of what today's episode is going to be called. I think it's going to be Bitcoin, UFOs, and fecal matter transplant. Good shit. <laughs> Good shit. I think it's I think it's wonderful. Thank you so much for your time, man. You're a, you're a wildly intelligent and uh, entertaining and interesting person. And uh, I always like when I get a free episode, when I just get to sit here and smile because those are the best episodes. The worst guests are the ones that you got to pry the information out of. You are well, you're my favorite type of guest. Just- and I want to thank you for giving me the opportunity sure. to develop my podcasting experience. Oh, yeah. I've been wanting to do this for a long time, and I just I needed someone like you to help me out. Absolutely. I appreciate it a whole bunch. Absolutely, man. I tell that to a lot of people. I'm like, just just start. And as soon as you start, you'll wonder why you didn't start years earlier. You're like, oh, this is easy. This is easy as hell. We just gotta mm-hmm. you just gotta start doing it. And you got it, man. You got it, Mr. Davis, Jeff. I'll email this episode. I'll email this episode to you. We will schedule another one. And uh, until then, thank you so much. See you again soon. All right, my man. Take care. God bless everybody. Stay safe. Thank you, sir.